Welcome to Coach House Talks. Okay, so as Andy said, we've nearly made it all the way through the Bible. From the beginning of everything, to the fall, to the story of God trying to win us back into relationship with him. Whether that was by choosing a people to live in, to, and showing them how to live through the law, or speaking with his prophets directly, all the way to God coming himself in Jesus to live with us, to bring us back to him. And then the story of the beginning of the church, which is where we are now, in the time between conversion and completion, in the time where we're just waiting for Jesus to return and fulfilling God's purposes by helping people be in relationship with him. So last week, Jamie took us through James and Peter's letters where we were encouraged to become mature and help others mature in the faith. This week, we're in the final letter of the New Testament. Now, these aren't necessarily chronologically last, but these being the last just means they're the smallest because in the New Testament, the books are arranged by size and then by um, author. They really don't take long to read and they're really relevant for today. These books were written by John, the disciple John, or John the Evangelist, who wrote John's gospel, and Jude, who was the brother of uh, James and Jesus, and Jamie covered James last week. They were written to different groups of believers or individual believers, but the books have three main themes that run all the way through them. So we'll look at them this morning. Now, you're going to get a bit of an insight as to how my classroom runs now. So this it. <laughs> we're going to do a little bit of maths. So this is what I'm, I'm used to doing. This is what I'm comfortable with. So can we have the first equation, please? So 146 minus 12. Hands up. Anyone know what this is? Go on. Good job. 134. Correct. Well done. Next one. <laughs> 13 times 4. Go on, Steve. 52, well done. 14 squared. Oh, it's got you thinking. It's got you thinking. Oh, not quite, nearly. 196, well done. And then the last one. No, I know, this one's hard. This one's hard, I tell you. It's 241.6. Yeah, yeah. So even Andy thinks, yeah, believe me, yeah. Well, actually, that's wrong. <laughs> did you it's actually two yeah two yeah you see the problem with false teachers is they take something that looks complicated and they keep it looking complicated and they give you the solution but their solution might not be right it might be much simpler than you think it is you probably believe me if I said it was 241.6 and just moved on when you have a gap in your knowledge, you have to trust what's being told to you. That's why the early church had a problem with false teachers. This was a young community that was dispersed all over the place without the solid Bible to guide them. They had the Old Testament and they'd heard about Jesus, but the church as an organisation hadn't yet put together the writings that were at its foundation. The young church was made up of people that had all sorts of backgrounds. There were Jews and Gentiles, people that had a history of knowing who God was, and people that had worshipped all sorts of gods in the past. They were a mixture of ages and cultures and had so many questions about how to practically apply the gospel. When I was younger, I used to believe everything that was said to me. If someone told me a fact with absolute conviction, it would go into the bank of facts in my brain 
And somewhere down the line, I'd repeat that fact with the same absolute conviction. There have been many times when people have asked me, where'd you get that information? And I realised I had no idea where it came from. Then I might realise that that fact was actually wrong, or at least had the wrong emphasis. I didn't lead people into error on purpose, but I wasn't careful enough to check my facts. Now, the early church didn't have Google or Wikipedia, and without even the whole Bible, it was hard for them to fact-check. Now, this allowed false teachers to come in and gather a following. One of those false teachings was that Jesus wasn't really fully God and fully human. And this came in three forms. Docetism, that taught that Jesus was not really human. Arianism, which taught that Jesus was below God. And Nestorianism, that taught that Jesus had God and human parts, but they were separate. The problem with all of these is that they deny that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Now, the Trinity is tricky to understand. And the fact that God came himself to earth as one of us and then gave himself up for us is a seemingly outrageous concept. But it's the truth. Denying that Jesus is God denies his sacrifice for us. 1 John 2.22 gives us the real key to discerning whether a teacher is true. It says, and who is a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ. Anyone who denies the Father and the Son is an antichrist. We can tell whether a teacher is true by whether they tell the whole truth about Jesus. Do they tell the truth about who he is and his sacrifice for us? Do they say that Jesus is God and has made a complete sacrifice for our sins? And more than that, has freed us from sinning continually. If they do, they may still make mistakes in what they say in their theology, as we all will do throughout our lives. But we know that they're still telling the same truth. Does it matter if they're Catholic or Pentecostal or Evangelical? As long as they're telling the truth about Jesus and what he's done for us, and they're not trying to add to or take away from what he's done, then we know that they're in the same family. We can disagree on other things. We still need to be careful about unhelpful emphases, as Daniel talked about two weeks ago. But these people haven't necessarily crossed the line into a new set of beliefs. However, we do need to be especially careful when things are quietly introduced. There's a story that says, if you throw a frog into a pot of boiling water, it will jump straight out. But if you put it into a pot of cold water and slowly increase the temperature, it will sit there until it boils to death. We need to make sure that something isn't introduced slowly. And we need to make sure that if something is introduced that we don't fully agree with, we check it. We don't want to be boiled to death because we allowed false teaching to seep in. People that introduce false teaching into the church can easily distort the truth and even drag us away from our faith. So what do we do to combat this? We can rely on the Holy Spirit from John 1 John 2, 27. We can test the teacher's actions from 3 John 1, 11, And we can show these people mercy while still being careful of their sin from Jude verse 22. Or in other words, hate the sin and love the sinner. We can also watch out and be diligent as it says in 2 John verse 8. One way we can watch out is to help look out for each other by discipling each other well. As Jamie said last week, this should be a natural part of our Christian walk. 
We need to be on the lookout for other people that are being led down the garden path. We also need to check what we've heard with other people. If in our spirit something seasons off, check that with someone else and against what the Bible says. We should all have people we're discipling, but also people that are discipling us. If you don't have those people, pray that God will reveal who those people are to you and find them, whether they go to the same church or not. So point one, be careful of false teachers, as applicable today as it ever was. We need to not fall into the traps that they set. One of the other traps set by false teachers that was around in the early church and is still around today is that we can live how we want and grace will cover us anyway. This is not the truth. Jesus died so we could be free from the consequences of sin and free from the sin that entangles us. He died to repair our relationship with God so we no longer have to sin. Sin is still bad for us, whether we've been saved or not. Once there was a minister called Dr. Howard that preached very strongly about sin. After the service, someone came up to him and said, Dr. Howard, we wish you wouldn't speak so strongly about sin. If our young people hear about sin so obviously, it will lead them into sinning more easily. The minister took a small bottle and showed it to the complainer. The bottle had a label on it that said strychnine and underneath it said poison in big, bold, red letters. Do you know what you're asking me to do, Dr. Howard said, pointing to the bottle. You're suggesting that I change the label on this bottle. Suppose I do and replace the word with essence of peppermint. Don't you see what would happen? The milder you make the label, the more dangerous you make the poison. However, there are some people that have given in to societal pressure and say we should move forward and accept that certain types of sin are not sin and that God has enough grace to cover everyone's sin, whether they repent or not, and that a loving God will never send anyone to hell and that we can sin because Jesus will forgive us anyway. The people that preach this pretend what they're saying is new and revolutionary and should move the church into a new tolerant era. However, 1, 2 and 3 John and Jude show us that people have said these things since the very beginning of the church. The devil comes up with the same lies to try and trick us because our memories are very short and people are easily conned in the same way they have been before. The devil wants the poison to look mild. These books help us fight against those heresies. It's very difficult as we live in a world that wants to be politically correct and say that however other people are living is acceptable. I'm not saying we should go and yell in people's faces in the streets that they're going to hell. That's not loving them. But we should be clear on where the boundaries are, and as much as possible, we should not go on sinning. We should be explicit about how dangerous sin is, because the milder you make the label, the more dangerous you make the poison. These teachings, just like the now and not yet kingdom of God, are all a balancing act. We've been freed from sin and we should no longer sin. And yet we will never be free of it completely in this life. We've been covered by grace and we should be confident in coming to the throne of God. And yet we're still sinners who should come with fear as God is a powerful God and could wipe us out in a breath. We should not be proud of our sin and yet we should confess it to one another. 
We should not accept sin when it's confessed to us. And yet we should be people that others can trust will always have forgiveness. Johnny talked about this a few weeks ago when he said we should find people to confess to. Confessing our sins helps us move on from them. We don't need to air our dirty laundry in public, but we should have people that keep us accountable in areas we struggle with the most. We cannot pretend we're without sin. One John says that makes God out to be a liar. But we need to try and avoid sin as much as possible. Jude uses stories from the Old Testament to show how unacceptable God finds sin. So listen up, anyone who thinks that God is a different God when he's destroying Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. Jude uses that exact example to show what awaits those who continue in their sin, those who take evil lightly, who scoff at it, he says. I'll say it again. God is the same God. He's the same as he's always been and will treat evil the way he has always done. He hates it and will wipe it out. The point is, if we've actually accepted what Jesus has done for us, we should love him and want to live the way he wants us to live. If we really, really trust him, then we should know his way is best. And that should make us want to live the way he wants us to. It's like when you get married to someone, you love each other and you want to, uh, you love each other so much you've chosen to live with someone and join your lives together, no matter what the other does. You've committed to love that person and be with that person and be there for that person and they've committed the same. However, because you love that person, you don't go out of your way to test the boundaries. You don't try to leave plates on top of the dishwasher or leave the shampoo bottle in the shower where it gets in the way or leave your clothes on the floor. Even more than that, you don't test the boundaries by flirting with other people because you love the person and you don't want to do that to them. And it's the same with God. We love him and we're grateful for all he's done for us. And we know he has our best at heart. So we choose to live within certain constraints. We choose to live the way he wants us to. This is also something I think about around Halloween. Not that there's anything innately sinful about dressing up in a witch costume and going to a party where there's creepy apple bobbing or walking around the streets dressed as a pumpkin collecting sweets from strangers, which doesn't seem safe to me anyway. But it makes sin and evil seem like something to have fun and play with, rather than what it actually is, which is a dangerous, deadly path that leads to nothing good. It is difficult because our culture tells us to follow how we feel and do what makes us happy, which on the surface seems right. God would want us to do what makes us happy. However, how we feel is not the most important. We don't follow our instincts like animals, as Jude verse 10 tells us. This brings destruction. We don't do what we would naturally think would make us happiest, but we play the game by God's rules. Our emotions can still tri trick us into thinking the wrong thing. They even sometimes make us feel guilty or like we're still condemned when we're not. 1 John 3 verse 20 says, even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings and he knows everything. God knew everything you were going to do before you were even born and he still chose to forgive you. You are not condemned. The Holy Spirit will convict you, but that will always be to correct the behavior. Condemnation is when we feel guilty and there's no longer anything we can do. 
There's no need to feel that way. Our sins have been wiped clean. God cares for us and will look after us, but his main aim is not for us to feel happy. It's for us to have a relationship with him. We will go through hard times. 1 John is quite clear that the world will not like how we live. The world will not like how Christians live and will be against us as we see happens today. The world would rather we bent the truth to fit in rather than stood firm in our faith. 1 John 12 says that Cain killed his brother because his brother was righteous and he was not. The world does not like to see God's purposes come into fruition or God's rule being established in people's lives because that's the opposite of everything it stands for. As Daniel said a couple of weeks ago, we shouldn't be surprised if we're persecuted for what we believe. That's to be expected. However, we can be sure that God will be with us in it. So we've not listened to false teachers and we've obeyed God by trying to get rid of all the sin in our lives, which leaves us with the final theme, love one another. All the books I'm covering today include this in some way or another. Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another and John says this is not a new commandment, but the church needs reminding of it. Why do we do this? Well, 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loved us. This is not always easy. Other people don't think the same way of us as us, so you can get in our way or do things a different way to how we thought was sensible. But we need to love each other anyway. And this applies to our church, but also to the wider church the body of believers that believe in Jesus the way we do, no matter what the finer points of their theology are, or the style of their worship is, or the way they do church, or how often they do communion, or what they wear. We should love one another. This love will present itself in different ways, whether it's saving people from false teachers and building each other up in the spirit, as mentioned in Jude, or whether it's caring for travelling preachers, as mentioned in 2 John, something this church has always had a heart for. We need to care for and look after each other, sharing as each one has need, as mentioned in Acts that the early church were doing. We need to be each other's biggest advocates, encouraging each other, as some people in this church are very good at. We need to talk positively behind each other's backs and bring grievances straight to the person with the aim of reconciliation without bad-mouthing them to others. In conclusion, these books were written to the early church, but when you read them, they feel like they could have been written to us today. The main message of all of them is don't listen to what false teachers are telling you, obey the Bible, avoid sin, and love one another because Jesus is who he said he is and will do what he has promised. Amen. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.